Hello everyone, welcome to session 8 in our study of Colossians. Today we'll be focusing on chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. As you remember from last week, we talked about the idea of old versus new. That as Christians, our old sinful nature has been put to death, according to chapter 3, verse 3, and we've been given new life in Christ, according to chapter 2, verse 13. And today we're going to discuss the idea of putting off versus putting on. Verse 9 tells us that we've put off our old selves, and verse 10 we'll see that we have put on a new self. So let's read Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 17, and I'll be reading from the CSB. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One of the things I love about God's word is that he never gives us an instruction without explaining to us how to accomplish it. Remember from last week in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, God says that we should seek and set our mind on things above, where Christ is. And we know that's important, but how does seeking the things above look in my day-to-day -day life? So, verse 5 through 17, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul shows us in practical terms how we go about seeking things above. So in verse 5 through 8, we see all the things that followers of Christ should avoid. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy or coarse language, lying. I mean, this is a pretty extensive list. It may almost seem impossible to accomplish. But remember what he told us back in chapter 1 in verse 9 and 11, that his spirit gives us knowledge, wisdom, and power. So not only does God tell us what to do, so we don't have to wonder, but he also tells us how to do it, and he gives us the power to do it. So in verse 5 through 9, he lists 11 sins that, behavior should, that uh, believers should avoid. And granted, this is not an exhaustive list. I mean, it doesn't mention every sin. 
However, it does point out both internal and external sins. Sins we can commit personally and privately, such as greed, lust, evil desire, and anger, and sins against another, sexual immorality, wrath, slander, lying. And notice that Paul doesn't categorize these sins either, like we do sometimes. I mean, we may think, well, yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I mean, it could be worse. I mean, it's not the worst sin in the world, and I'm really not hurting anybody. But God knows there is no sin that we commit that only affects ourselves. Sin always causes collateral damage. In verse 5, it says to put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. I mean, that is very strong language, put to death. So again, there is no wiggle room here. We are to completely get rid of these things. So we can't say, well, you know, I'm just naturally an angry person. I just have a bad temper. I can't help it. I was just born that way. No, we are to completely remove these things from our lives. Because even though we have died, according to chapter 3, verse 3, to the power and condemnation of sin, we still have to contend with sin in our daily lives. You see, the false teachers during that time, they were saying that, well, if you were born that way, then you can't help it. It's really not your fault. Therefore, it must not be wrong, so go ahead and indulge in it. So we must not fall into this trap. We must continue to try to remove these things from our lives. And it is a battle. Paul even says in Romans chapter 7, verse 19 and 20, that I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. You see, Paul is stressing the fact that it's important to use the power that God has given us to refuse to allow ourselves to fall back into those old sinful tendencies. And let's face it, the devil would like nothing better than to see a follower of Christ succumb to their old sinful ways, thus hindering their relationship with Jesus and damaging their testimony to those around them. Verse 7 says, you once walked in these things when you were living in them. We all were once objects of God's wrath. We had no power over our sinful ways because we were spiritually dead. Christ was not living within us. But once we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we were able to refuse those things because the power of Jesus works within us. Now, there is no denying that getting rid of sin in our lives is a battle. But it's a battle worth waging because God is working in the midst of it. He's drawing us closer to himself in the midst of this, and he's making us more like him. Verse 9 and 10 says that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self. You're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So this idea of putting off and putting on, actually from the Greek, it's a reference to clothing. Verse 12 in the NIV actually uses the words, clothe yourselves. You see, in the Bible, behavior is often portrayed as a garment. Job 29.14 says, I clothed myself in righteousness, and it enveloped me. My just decisions were like a robe and a turban. 
Other verses pertaining to clothing are Psalm 35, 26, Romans 13, 12, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. So it's, it's as if we have taken off the old, worn-out clothing of our old self, and we have put on the beautiful, new clothing of our new selves. Famous basketball coach John Wooden tells the story of how on the first day of practice, he sits all of his players down and teaches them how to put on their socks and shoes. Now, he describes the laughing and the eye rolls he receives from his players. They think he's crazy. Put on your socks and shoes. But his philosophy is this. To be successful in a game, you must be well prepared, even down to your clothing. Imagine if during a game, a player's shoe comes untied or his socks don't fit properly and they sink down into his shoes and cause a blister. Will he be able to perform at the top of his ability? And if he's not at the top of his game, the whole team suffers. Now you see where I'm going with this. Qualities such as greed, lust, anger, malice, wrath, they no longer fit the Christian life. And if we don't root these things out, they will fester like a blister and hinder us in our walk with the Lord and affect the others around us. So we have put off and put on selves. We have put off old selves and we have put on new selves. You see, salvation is not just a lifestyle change. It's much deeper than that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Verse 11 goes on to say that in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, the more we're being renewed to look like Christ, the more we become aware that no one in our family, the family of God, is more important than anyone else. In the family of God and in Christ, there are no distinctions. Greek and Jews refers to national distinctions. Circumcision, uncircumcision refers to religious distinctions. Barbarians and Scythians refer to cultural distinctions. Slave and free refer to economic distinctions. There are no distinctions in the family of Christ. As Christians, we all have the same foundation. So, Paul has thoroughly explained in verses 5 through 11 who we do not want to be. And he goes on in verses 12 through 17 to show us who we should want to be as Christians. These are the characteristics that properly fit the Christian life. And in verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, whenever we see the word therefore, that directs us back to the previous verses. And looking back, we find that Christ is all and in all. So because Christ is in us, we are chosen, holy, and he dearly loves us. And because of his great love for us, we're able to have compassion, to be kind, humble, gentle, and patient. You see, Jesus is all of these things, and if he lives within us, then we can be these things. Again, we cannot use the excuse that, well, I'd like to be more patient, but that just isn't in my nature. 
I wasn't born that way. I wasn't brought up that way. But you see, as Christians, we all have the ability to exemplify these qualities that Wiersbe calls the beautiful graces of the Christian life. And see, God knows that just putting off bad behavior is not enough. We must replace it with something. It must be replaced with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And in verse 13, it says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Forgiveness is such a vital part of the Christian life. Because we know that an unforgiving heart actually causes more damage to us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, than it ever would to the offender. God wants us to understand that when we put on compassion, kindness, and humility, and love, we will be better able to bear with or put up with one another and forgive one another. And notice what the verse says, if anyone has a grievance against another. So there is no circumstance in this context under which God will allow an unforgiving heart. Well, now, wait a minute, you might be thinking, you don't know how badly I've been hurt. You don't know how catastrophic this thing that's been done to me. I mean, I should have the right not to forgive. Well, please, dear believer, don't for one minute think that I am making light of the hurt that's been done to you. I understand the pain, but I can also tell you that forgiveness is possible. If we are letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, then yes, forgiveness is possible. You see, unforgiveness, that may be our way of punishing the offender, somehow holding them accountable. But verse 6 says that the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient, meaning he is the judge, not us. So by holding on to that grievance, we're putting ourselves in the judge's seat, saying who is and who is not worthy of forgiveness. But he ends verse 13 by saying, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive. And so how has the Lord forgiven us? Well, according to chapter 2, verse 13, he has forgiven all our trespasses. So by forgiving the person who has wronged us, we're taking ourselves off the throne of judgment and allowing God his rightful place in our lives. Some of you might remember the 1994 genocide that took place in Rwanda among the Hutus and the Tutsis. On April 6, in 1994, the Rwandan president's plane was shot down and the Hutu militias decided to retaliate by exterminating all Tutsis. Jean-Claude was a young boy of 11 at the time, and he witnessed this genocide. He says, the Hutus killed the Tutsis. But Hutus were not people who came from other countries or from far away. They were our neighbors. They were our friends. Jean-Claude hid in the bushes when Hutus attacked his village. He watched his neighbors torture, mutilate, and murder his father. He saw men murder his sister, aunts, and uncles. But through a Christian organization, Jean-Claude gave his life to Jesus, and he learned about love. He says, I learned to love others as God loves everyone, and decided to give his own son. He then made the choice to forgive those who murdered his family. 
He went on to graduate from school and started a nonprofit to help poor and orphan children. He made the conscious effort to help both Hutu and Tutsi children. Amazingly, he even chose to sponsor the child of his father's murderer. You see, this is the picture of what verse 14 and 15 tell us. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. You see, this is what it means to put on love. This is what it looks like to let the peace of Christ rule your heart. And we are able to maintain this love, peace, and unity if we let the word of Christ dwell within us. As it says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. You see, we can't follow God's ways if we don't know God's ways. We should study meditate, and apply the Word of God to our lives. Think for a moment about your favorite book. How many times have you read it? How well do you know the story? How excited do you get when you talk about it? Charles Spurgeon says this about letting the Word of God dwell within us. He says, many of us treat the Word of God as a visitor. We let it knock at the door of our heart and soul, instead of inviting it in and making it a part of our lives. And because of that, we miss its power. And what better way to solidify God's word in our hearts than through hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs? You see, this is a picture of a worship service. It's a powerful way to praise the Lord and encourage one another. Verse 17 goes on to say, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I have this question. Do you think that we would be doing and saying the same things if we were putting Jesus' name on all we do and say? 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Do everything for God's glory. So we can bring glory to God in anything, not just the big, grand religious things, but even in small daily tasks. We can prepare dinner, wait in line, sit in traffic in the name of Jesus, rather than grumbling and complaining that we have to do this mundane task again. Small, insignificant actions can become opportunities for praise to the Lord. And when others see this attitude in us, It may be just the thing that draws them closer to Jesus. So our very lives can become an offering of gratitude to God. So as we close today, the challenge for the week is to let the word of God dwell in us. And in order to do that, let's try to commit a verse to memory this week. I'm going to be memorizing Psalm 27, verse 13 and 14, which says, I'm certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I look forward to meeting you again next time. God bless you.